0: All right, welcome again. My name again is Paul Stiver. Uh, we are in uh, week 23, the Michael Jordan week of Romans. Uh, it's nothing to do with that, okay. Uh, and so uh, this is actually, fun fact, this is the 40th sermon that I will have ever preached in the Hope Community Church system. And uh, so uh, actually I d- heard a preaching lecture once where the, the lecturer said, you don't have to start having good sermons until 100 in. So this one doesn't have to be good. That's exciting. It feels uh, relieving to know. Um, but so we're in Romans, and, we're, and this is the letter from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And why do we study this? Because what ultimately we're going to see is there's an Old Testament story pointing to an event. And it's, the, it's Christ's life and death and resurrection. And then uh, the New Testament is going to be written to say, what just happened? what happened? And, and the Apostle Paul is writing Romans to tell us what happened and why that is significant. And so um, what he's done so far is say the Bible tells a story. In Romans chapter one through three, he's told us the Bible's telling a story, but what he said that story tells us is different than what we expect. And so in Romans chapter four, he's got to prove his work. So here's what he's arrived at in Romans three, verse three, verse 21, it says, but now, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So right there in verse 21, he kind of gives us a, here's what's happened, but now. Something different, something that has changed, a righteousness has come through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a part of the law, but the law, as in the writings of the law and the prophets are pointing forward to it. They're telling us that this is going to happen. And so in Romans chapter 4, which we looked at last week and we're looking at this week, he's got to prove it. He's got to show his work, as it were, for you math people. I don't know would choose math, but if you did, that's your choice. Uh, He's going to show his work today. And so just recapping last week, a few things. Abraham's faith, not his good deeds, was counted to him as righteousness. We're going to look at when and why. David, the psalmist, tells us what grace is about, and then we're going to see God justifies the ungodly. Does the math work, Apostle Paul? And so right away in Romans 4, he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, so this is Honest Abe from Genesis 12 and beyond, all right? this kind of big figure in the Old Testament. If he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what did Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him or counted to him as righteousness. And so this is the story in Genesis 15:6. God had already in Genesis 12 promised Abraham, you're going to have an offspring and he's going to bless the nations. And he's going to come through you. And so Abraham is like, okay, I guess so. But then later in Genesis 15, he's like, I don't have, this hasn't happened. Uh, My nephew is going to be my heir, I guess. I don't know what's going on. And God brings him out and has him at night in the desert, right? No light pollution. So it's all stars. And he says, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham looks at it and goes, okay. He believes God and God says, you know what? Righteous. Counts him as righteous. Righteous right there in Genesis 15, which means he has nothing to boast about. He didn't earn that righteousness. God credited it to him through his faith. And so continuing on in Romans 4, it said, Is this blessing, this righteousness through faith, only for the circumcised Jewish people, ethnic Jews, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. All right. So besides saying the word circumcised a lot, there's actually a point to be made here, uh, which is this. When uh, Abraham was declared righteous, it was in Genesis 15. In Genesis 17 is when the sign or the seal of circumcision comes in that sets him apart as one of God's people. Now, I'm not a math guy, but 17 minus 15 equals 2. Are we tracking? All right, good. I I had to look that one up. But, uh, so what he's saying is, Abraham was declared righteous by his faith before any other action of law-keeping or morality. And in fact... Abraham wasn't essentially ethnically Jewish at this time, right? He's going to—Israel, the nation of Israel, is going to come later from him. But right now, he's just Abraham. And even further, in the storyline, the big L law, which we've been calling it, the Mosaic law, which comes when God gives the Ten Commandments and everything else that he calls the people to himself, out of bondage, that law has not happened. It won't actually come around for 430 years, Why? Why then, not law-keeping, but faith? And it says there in verse 11, at the bottom there, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. So this is not about the purpose being to make him the father of all who are ethnically Jewish, like him. No, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. And then David tells us what that blessing, what that grace looks like. He continued this again from Romans 4. David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's quoted from Psalm 32. David here is describing what grace is. And what he's saying is, it is something, a blessing that comes apart from any effort on our part. What is the person who's blessed in this passage done? They've committed lawless deeds and they've sinned and they're blessed. What did they contribute? Sin and resistance, as Martin Luther liked to say, right? That's what he's telling us. This is how grace works. He's saying this is what it always was. And Romans 4, 5 clarifies as well. We just have to have this one in here. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It is not works, but faith That is going to be righteousness. Or another way to think of righteousness is credits, access, acceptance. It's grace. Paul's saying it's always been about grace, but your option then is to reject it or believe it. And I was thinking about options this week. How many people have gone to the Cheesecake Factory? I love the Cheesecake Factory, but I also really struggle there. You guys, anybody have this where you go to a restaurant and the more things it has on the menu, the more you're like, I don't know what to order. I like bring servers in. I'm like, what do you eat here? And I like, what's this? Is there specials? Cheesecake Factory's menu is notoriously massive and it's like paralyzing. And so you never do that move where you close the menu so the server can come over. Anyway, all right. So what I'm saying is, when I'm ordering a Cheesecake Factory, I'm so nervous, especially, okay, last thing. When you're in a group, right, and someone orders something that you didn't get, but you thought about, and then it looks so good, right? Why didn't I get the fajitas? Oh! And you got like a cheeseburger that doesn't look good. Whatever. All right, <laughs> enough Cheesecake Factory banter for today, but you're always worried. We're worried about making the right choice. I always feel that way in traffic as well, right? Doesn't it feel like when you're in traffic the other lane next to you is cruising, and then you move over to that lane, and then the lane you were in starts cruising, you're like, I can't make the right choice. But we actually, I, I'm going to contend, we're always trying to kind of look for rightness. We're, in fact, we're told that a lot, that I've got a whole bunch of different stuff up here. Right now, I'm doing a fantasy football draft, and I am nervous about drafting the right player. Uh, we, I don't feel like me, you read reviews, a lot of reviews because you're nervous about buying the right product or just nervous about making decisions, making the right decision. I think we want to uh, get right with ourselves, right? So we want to work on our mental health or our physical health. We want to make sure we find the right relationship, maybe get our kids into the right schools, find the right job, buy the right house, vote for the right candidate because they have the right agenda, have the right opinion on the issues, be found to be on the right side of history. I think we feel this pressure from inside and outside to have rightness, to feel okay, to feel at ease. We actually do this with God as well, whether you are in here and you're on the uh, this is a spectrum of religiosity. Maybe you say, I'm not even, I, I just don't think I need to be right with God. I'm not even sure God exists. Or maybe you're somewhere in the middle and you say, I, Um, Yeah, maybe Christianity, I'm trying things out, I'm searching, I'm looking for answers, but I'm just not sure how to get right with God or feel right with myself. Or maybe, maybe you're very religious and you think, if I just live the right way and keep the right rules and and obey enough, God will have to accept me. And what the gospel is going to tell us, and our passage is going to tell us today is that we can't set up human systems to tell God how we're going to relate to Him. In fact, he's existing on an entirely different spectrum that says, here's how I'm going to relate to you. And it's counterintuitive. All our self-conjured systems of rightness don't work. So God is actually going to come to us. He's going to operate in a graceful way. And he's going to operate on his terms, which are, we're going to see, saving us by grace through faith. So that's the big idea for today. We're always trying to get right by finding homeostasis peace or an assurance that it will be okay, that I'm okay, and that things are going to work out. We tend to look for this security, and I've defined security as kind of present feelings of rightness and future hope in a myriad of ways, some helpful, some harmful. And our passage, Romans 4, 13 through 25 exists to show us there's one counterintuitive way of laying hold of an unflinching certainty A certain future and present, the receiving of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, opens a doorway into a joyful present and a hopeful future that isn't defined by ourselves or our circumstances, but by our Savior. So that's where we're going today. The title of this sermon is Always Saved by Grace Through Faith. The Apostle Paul has now got to prove, he's saying, if if it is about relating to God on his terms, if it is about faith and not keeping the law, he has to prove that it has always been The plan, that it's always been God's plan A. So let's get into our passage. We're going to go slide by slide here and kind of break these down. So starting in verse 13, it says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression." We have a 21-month-old at home, and uh, hold 21-month-old at home, and uh, I just started playing this game with him called Trust Fall, and I just stand behind him. And I say Trust Fall, and he falls right like, into me. When there's a promise in the Bible, it always means there's going to have to be trust. There's going to have to be faith. Why? Because in the interim, between a promise being made and a promise being kept, there's a gap. And in order to believe in a promise to be kept, you have to have faith. What Paul's saying here is, the promise is about faith. So if it's people that come later who keep the law that are the heirs, then what's the point of the promise? There's no point. Believing a promise always requires faith. If the law fulfills the promise, it isn't a promise. It's just what you deserve. He continues on. He says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I'm not going to actually touch on it, but I feel compelled to just highlight. I've actually glossed over it, but we should just highlight. Here's how God is described in this passage, giving life to the dead, calling things into existence that do not exist. Pretty big picture of God. And that's who Abraham believed. And why? Why does it depend on faith? So that the promise may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. So then we've got to ask, who are Abraham's offspring? Who are these people, these nations that come from Abraham? And we actually get that from Galatians chapter 3, another letter from the Apostle Paul. Who are, okay, Here, let's just do it. Who are the children of Abraham? Verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Check. All right, got it. Scripture foresaw, he's saying the Bible actually was saying this ahead of time, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. That's from Genesis 12. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He's saying, who are the real children of Father Abraham? He's saying it's not ethnic, but spiritual. It isn't ethnic Israel who are the children of Father Abraham. It's anyone from any ethnicity who believes like he did. It's people of faith through, from all nations. Anyone who shares the faith of Abraham. And this shift in Paul's theology, which happens when Christ appears to him on the Damascus Road, and then he comes out of that saying, oh, this was all about Jesus. This shift and him teaching this almost gets him killed a bunch of times because it's shocking He says, it's not your good deeds that are going to make you right with God. He does it and everybody can get in on it. And to people who thought it was about good deeds and it was about their nation, they don't like that message. But this has been the plan all along. And there really is two ways to live. Galatians 3, the following passage here, 10 through 14, tells us there are two ways to live. You can live, whether you believe in God or don't, for your own self-justification. Maybe it's that people think highly of you. Maybe it is another belief system. If you just do the right works, you're acceptable. That's one way to live. The other way to live is to look for justification from an outside source, namely Christ. Just two ways to live. Galatians 3 is going to talk about this. By the law, self-justification, whether big L law, I'm going to obey all the rules, or little L law, I just have to have people accept me and I kind of define my own morality. Or by receiving Christ in his righteousness. And so it says in in verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because it says in the Bible, the righteous will live by faith. And Paul says this, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What's that curse of the law? Live up to this standard. You can't. That's a curse. Anyone feel that in life? Standards that you can't live up to, that's what it feels like to be cursed. And what it says is, Christ became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung in a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, Through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. What's shocking about this then is that God actually is not interested in you being a good person. You realize that? God doesn't want you to clean yourself up to come to Him. What He's saying is, I will justify you by faith in my Son. But if you try to earn your way to Me, or if you try to make your life apart from Me, you're on your own and you're cursed. The blessing is in Christ, and it comes to anyone who believes. The law that says obey just brings wrath. There has to be another way. And, but the big thing we have to see here is, what do you rely on? Right there in verse 10, it says, for all who rely. This is about what you put your hope in. Is it in you? Whether, again, irreligious, kind of live in your own way, or religious, I'm just going to do enough to obey, and then God will have to accept me. Or is your hope in Christ and what he's done? There's two ways to live, living by the law or living by faith. John Stott says it this way, law and promise belong to two different categories of thought, which are incompatible. Law language, he says, you shall, demands our obedience, but promise language, I will, that I there being God, demands our faith. What God said to Abraham, what he's saying to us is not, obey this law and I will bless you, but I will bless you. Believe my promise. And this is Paul's argument. He's saying it's always been this way. So, continuing on in the story, then he goes further talking about Abraham. He says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, she was somewhere between 80 and 100, the scholars think, what's happening here? God promised your offspring's gonna come. You're gonna have a child that's gonna be your heir. He's like, I'm super old and Sarah's old and we're barren. How can I know this? Oh, I'm looking at my earthly circumstances and I realize God can do more than I think. Even looking at my circumstances, and so then he ends up with this, in hope, he believed against hope. He ends up with an unshakable hope. Because it's rooted in God, God's character, and God's promise, or otherwise known, God's word. He's looking at God and saying, I'm going to trust you to be God. That's the old Elizabeth Elliot line. When we trust God, that's what we, that's, we have to trust God to be God. Which means he can do only things that he can do. Abraham's unshakable hope was rooted in God. Do you realize the power, the freedom of having a hope that is not rooted in yourself, but rooted in someone outside of you who will never let you down? I was actually, most of my 20s was living, most of my 20s was living as my, my hope. And holy cow, was it a nightmare. Depression, anxiety, stress. Pain, constantly looking for life in the new thing and always failing until God found me. That's life changing. Continues on. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is not from Abraham, doubtless perfection. And if you guys are familiar with the story of Abraham, you remember, he sinned quite a bit. This is more persistence in believing God, even over against looking at his own circumstances and what they might say to him. This was trusting God to be God, as Elizabeth Elliot says. And so here's another quote on this idea of waiver from a commentary. It says, waiver here is a Greek word, diakrino, which means to act as judge, to pass judgment, to decide or determine. The point is that he did not allow unbelief to put him into a judgment mode where, like a trial judge, or jury, he would weigh the evidence and make his decision. How many of us come to God's word with that posture? I'll weigh what you say and then I'll make my decision. But Abraham, it says here, what are the chances of God pulling this promise off? A judge might ask. Let's examine the evidence. But this is exactly what Abraham did not do, turn into a judge who critiques at the human level the possibilities of God succeeding in doing what he promised. So Abraham ends up, because of this, not humanly judging God, looking at his circumstances, but instead trusting God to be God. And and just a few things that Abraham trusted God for, to overturn barrenness. to declare him righteous. Abraham trusted God to send this child of promise and ultimately a Savior who would bless everyone. And Abraham trusted that God could bring someone back from the dead. We'll have more on that later, so put a pin in that. Trusting God to do God things instead of sitting in judgment and saying, I don't think he could handle it. That's Abraham's faith. But... It says, continue on, verse 23, The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It if will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So these words of it was counted to Abraham as righteousness were written also for us so that we could know with certainty that right now, And for all time, I am right with God. Why can I know that? And here's the gospel. If you take anything away from this sermon, take this. Jesus was delivered up for our sin and raised for our justification. That's the message of Christianity. God sets the terms. We don't work our way to God. He works his way to us. And when he comes to us as the Son, Christ, he's delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You realize that you, there's no way to walk away from this news indifferent. There's two ways to live. Believe this, believe in this Son, or reject him. But here's the message. It's about faith. And we might ask, why then? Why was it always about grace through faith? Why? Why? There's really one way to have present confidence and future hope. There really is. There's one way. It's not the right job. It's not the right looks, which are fleeting. It's not the right spouse. It's not the right candidate with the right agenda, but it's being right with God. If you want to have unshakable confidence today that you're okay and hope for the future, it transcends your circumstances, it's faith. It's believing in God. This is, you guys, this is freedom. Do you realize the freedom of not having to wake up and wonder every day, am I enough? Am I good enough? Will I be enough? Will it work out? But let's look at three things about this faith reality. Only faith levels the playing field, the uniqueness of grace, only faith creates certainty, and then look at the only object of our faith. So only faith levels the playing field. I know there's a lot of words today. I actually just learned. Uh, I'm going to say a lot more words before we're done. I actually just learned, though, that thinking hard burns calories. That if you take the bar exam, you burn like 1,400 calories. So if you're in here, and this is a lot of words that are making you think hard, you're welcome. I'm giving you a workout, so <laughs> it counts for your Apple Watch or whatever. All right, but, all right. Why uh, why faith? And how is it how does it level the playing field? Actually, going back a little bit, Paul, when he declares this gospel, he says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. What's he saying? He's saying the gospel and this plan was always about all people. Anyone who would believe from ethnic Jews or any other nation, which is what the Gentiles are. He said, that's who God is. It was always going to be his plan. There's no insider outsider with God. Anyone can come to him by faith. But you have to come by faith. You know, it's interesting because society, the world we live in, naturally creates outsiders. I was thinking about, there's many categories I could have gone with this, but I chose these three. The bell there is meant to signal libertarian. They don't have the, they didn't have the graphic libertarian, but just know. Think about this, all right? Society always creates insider-outsider categories. This is a problem because there's a couple of things that happen. One, they make a demand on us. If you're a Democrat or if you're a Republican or if you're a Libertarian or if you're not, in order to become one of the three, there's a demand. What is that demand? You have to change your beliefs and change your behavior. If you wanna be progressive, you gotta live this way. And you gotta think these things. And if you don't think them enough and hard enough, I don't know if you're acceptable. If you wanna be conservative, you gotta live this way. You gotta think this way and you gotta do these things and fight these battles. And if you don't try hard enough, are you acceptable? I don't know. And the libertarian in here might be like, "Ah, we don't have to deal with that because we just don't care. Actually, you care a lot, right? Well, you might say, you have, in order to be a libertarian, you got to come and you got to do these things. You got to behave this way. You got to think this way. There's always a demand for us to change in order to fit into one of these categories. But not only that, these categories divide us. They cause us to boast. They cause us to look down on others. You believe what? Uh, we maybe won't hang out anymore. You think that's the right opinion on that issue? I'm gonna unfriend, unfriend. We look down, we boast. Only grace levels the playing field. You see that? You realize that to be saved by grace means that you don't have to change to be acceptable to God. He wants you as you are because he's gonna be the one that changes you. You don't have to change beliefs to behavior. You just put your trust in him and he starts changing you. I guess that's one belief change, but you know what I'm saying. Secondly, when you come to God by grace, you got nothing to boast about. Why? I didn't do this. I didn't save me. It wasn't because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and made myself a good enough Christian. I was saved by grace. I didn't deserve it and I was given it. That's what grace is. Only faith levels the playing field. One commentator says this. Why did God choose faith as the means by which we receive justification? It is apparently because faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. When we've come to Christ in faith, we essentially say, I give up. I will not depend on myself or my own good works any longer. I know I can never make myself righteous before God. Therefore, Jesus, I trust you and depend on you completely to give me a righteous standing before God. In this way, faith is the exact opposite of trusting in ourselves. And therefore, he says, it is the attitude that perfectly fits salvation that depends not at all on our own merit, but entirely on God's free gift of grace. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may level the playing field, may rest on grace, And be guaranteed to all his offspring. This is a true level playing field. You got to hear this. There is no, for the gospel, there is no improved access or increased barrier based on, for example, the following there's no improved access or increased barrier for you to be right with God based on your skin color, based on your sin in your past or your good deeds. There's no improved access or barrier based on your age, your education level, your pay stub, your attractiveness, your intelligence, your politics, your gender, your childhood upbringing. None of these things give you a better shot with God, nor do they hinder you from God. There's no, uh, you know what the obstacle is to come to God, to be right with God? There is one. It's your pride. It's your thought that you can save yourself. The only thing we need to be right with God is need. We put our faith in him. And you realize that, you realize nobody unites like Christ does. Because he saves by grace. Not like our society where it's merit-based or looks-based or intelligence-based or education-based or politics-based. Christ saves by grace which means anyone can come to him. This is actually the uniqueness of grace. You realize this? Every other worldview, every belief system, every philosophy, salvation is based on your promises. I promise to obey. I promise to live by those principles. I promise to stay cool. A little bit, right? I promise to never stop improving and and maybe then I'll be acceptable. Only Christianity, only Christianity is salvation, not dependent on your promises, but on the promise of another, on God's promise. And we are not saved, like every other worldview says, by what we promised to do. We're saved by what God promised and did. That's the gospel. And you realize then grace is actually very unique. It's rare to see it. There's actually, we just saw it recently, A little baseball reference here, for those that don't know, this is Trey Turner. This year, Trey Turner signed a contract with the Philadelphia Phillies for 10 years, I believe $300 million. What is, I'm gonna talk about what Grace is, but what a contract is, is a promise to perform. You're paying me a lot of money. I promise to perform, I'll sign this contract. 10 years, $300 million. Trey Turner has been a career, very good player. This year, he was terrible. Terrible. He got the big deal and he was terrible. That promise to perform was crippling him. But then grace came in. If you're familiar at all with Philly fans or fans in general of Philadelphia teams, this is going to be surprising. About a month ago, instead of booing him and saying, we paid you $300 million, what are you doing? Philly fans created a campaign, and when he got up to bat, they gave him a standing ovation. He was hitting 236 at the time, terrible batting average for a superstar player. And they stood up, and instead of jeering him, they applauded him. They honored him. They said, we love you. Honor before performance, that's what grace is. Honor before performance, especially when we don't deserve it. That's what grace is. That's what they did for Trey Turner. They showed him love and honor that was not based on his undeserving performance. And actually, because in grace, in Christianity, acceptance comes before we ever do anything for God, he started going off. He's hit like 370 since then. He's got nine homers, nine doubles, 21 RBIs, or 21 runs, 26 RBIs. I looked it up. There's like one person who's like, that's awesome. Other people are like, I don't know baseball. What I'm saying is he was honored when he didn't deserve it. And that's what actually led him to perform. That's Christianity. And that's unique. Jared Wilson says, The gospel makes Christianity unique among all of the religions and philosophical systems of enlightenment, approval, or success because, well, every other system primarily teaches things to do. Only Christianity primarily teaches that the things to do are done. Outside of Christianity, both religious and irreligious systems aimed at personal success or fulfillment, hold out for their adherence to a certain goal, heaven, nirvana, reincarnation, enlightenment, happiness, and so forth, and then set out a list of instructions and steps to to reach that goal. Only Christianity says done before you start. And we might ask, why do I feel so busy? Why am I so burned out? Maybe we're running around trying to self-justify. Maybe we're adding things to the calendar, adding things to life, because we don't know if we feel this acceptance with God. We've got to understand grace. Every worldview says work hard. Only Christianity says work done. Rest. Secondly, only faith creates certainty. This feels counterintuitive, but only faith Create certainty. Look again what it says. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted as righteousness. I'm going to make the claim that the more we trust in ourselves, the mantra of our age, the more uncertain we are. The more we trust in God, the more unshakable we become. Famous author who had great influence, Norman Vincent Peale, wrote the book The Power of the Positive Thinking in the 50s, and he says this, Believe in yourself, have faith in your abilities. Without a humble but reasonable confidence in your own powers, you cannot be successful or happy, but with sound self-confidence you can succeed. A sense of inferiority and inadequacy interferes with the attainment of your hopes, but self-confidence leads to self-realization and successful achievement. my question for MVP here would be, what if I can't overcome this? This was actually my thinking in my 20s and everything I tried and failed at, I could never overcome that sense of inferiority and inadequacy. I was never enough. I never could measure up, no matter how hard I tried. Further despair. It felt like we just did the Ferris wheel with our little guy and it, it, he was just tall enough to ride. But a lot of life feels like this. Am I going to be enough? And what do we do when our self-belief doesn't make us taller, as it were? What do we do when self-belief lets us down? What do we do with the hopelessness that creates? Again, it says, in hope he believed against hope. We look to God. The gospel has no measure up sign that says you must be this tall to ride. Anybody can get in on it. And anybody can today have this kind of hope. That overcomes. Abraham's faith transcended uh, his inability, his inferiority. It transcended his hopelessness. It transcended his circumstances because he trusted in God, not himself. His faith created certainty. Lastly, let's look at the only object of our faith. Tim Keller says this. It is not the strength of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying your faith in yourself fatally inferior to even a weak faith in Christ. Because ultimately it matters what your faith is in not only for present confidence and security, but future hope. So going back to this gospel message, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It would be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's the Christian faith. Christian faith is this. Jesus was delivered up by God, for our sins. He died on a cross for our sins. And he was raised from the dead so that we could know now and forever that we are right with God simply through our faith in him. That I am right with God by by my belief in the news that Jesus died and rose again. And this actually, we're going to see in a roundabout way, the author of Hebrews tells us, is what Abraham really believed. So if you're familiar with the Bible at all, there's kind of a crazy story that might feel hard to talk about if you're talking to someone who doesn't read the Bible or trust it. When Isaac is born, and possibly not just when he's a kid, he might even be an adult man at this time. Scholars are uncertain. Abraham says, we're going up to the mountain because God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain. And Isaac says, I'll go with you, Father. And he goes and he lays down to be sacrificed. Trusting in his father. And Abraham, as he's about to sacrifice his son, again, this might feel like a hard story to explain. As he's about to sacrifice his son, looks and God has provided a lamb. And he names the mountain the Lord will provide. And instead of killing Isaac, the, the lamb is sacrificed. Well, let me read the passage here. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He, Abraham, who had embraced the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. See what he's saying? The author is saying, Abraham was willing to do it, even though God had promised. Isaac's the the child of promise. He's the one who you're going to have nations from. Why? Verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now, Abraham and his faith is not the object of our faith. He's not just a moral example. It's what his faith was in. Because many, many years later, a different child of promise is going to climb a different mountain. The Lord Jesus is going to climb a mountain and go to the cross. The true Isaac. The true child of promise, Jesus, is going to come. The one who brings the blessing. But unlike Isaac, who was spared by the lamb, Christ is going to actually die. The true Isaac actually dies, is actually sacrificed. But like Abraham's faith here in that he thought Isaac would come back from the dead, Christ comes back from the dead. That's what the Christian faith ultimately is in. A resurrected Savior who started breathing again. Who sat up and retied his sandals after being dead. Walked out of his grave and rose to the right hand of the Father so you can know now and forever that if your faith is in Jesus, you're going to be okay. It's going to work out. And you've been invited into something you could have never earned. A glory you didn't deserve. We can be sure today that by faith, we are right with God. Do you know why Romans 4, 5 says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness? Do you know why it says God justifies the ungodly? Because that's all there is. It's all we've given him. But the way back to God, the way to be right with God is faith. This News, this certainty now and future is like the North Star. It constantly reorients us when life throws everything it has at us. Constantly helps us to navigate. And there's two promises from Jesus that can carry us forward. The first one is this. In John 19, 30, as he's dying on the cross, Christ says, it is finished. The work of righteousness has been completed. And now we receive that righteousness by believing in Christ. He's paid our debt on the cross and he's fulfilled all righteousness. That's his first promise to us that we can always keep as a North Star guiding us back when life throws everything at us. The second is this, Revelation 22, seven, behold, I'm coming soon. I even added his name so that we remember. He's coming back. We get these two promises from Jesus. So as we close, first, I just want to ask, is your faith in Christ today Faith is essentially trust. And you know what trust is? Trust is saying, I think I could be safe with you. I think I can be vulnerable with you. As ungodly sinners, God is not safe. But Christ has died. Christ has become vulnerable, paid the penalty for our sin, rose so that we could be declared righteous. So now God becomes very safe. He becomes our father who we can run to who delights in us, who we can trust fall into. So is your faith in Christ today or is it in you? And second, if it it is, let's just remember these promises that he makes. He's done it. There's nothing we got to prove. I'm okay in Jesus and he's coming back, which means right now I have confidence and I have a certainty for the future that transcends my circumstances. That's the power of faith. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. We're gonna move to a time of communion. When we take this communion, it is a remembrance. Like it says here, to remember the promises. We can remember as we take the elements. The wafer, which represents Christ's body broken for us. The juice, which represents Christ's blood shed for us. That it is finished. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I can be right with God today. Or I can remember that I am right with God. As we take this communion, you don't have to be a member of this church or any church. We only ask that you would be someone who says, my faith." Is in Christ and his righteousness on my account, not in my own. I'm going to pray and we'll continue on with worship and song. Father, we thank you that your plan A has been always to draw people to yourself from any tribe, tongue, and nation who will come to you by faith in Christ alone, that we get to be saved not because we were better or worse than anyone, We get to be saved by grace. We get to receive a blessing and honor we didn't deserve, and that actually changes us today and forever. So God, we praise you now for your grace. We only ask that you would make Jesus bigger in our lives, make what he accomplished as the true Isaac who was sacrificed for us so that we could walk free. Make that bigger in our hearts and minds as we continue on through worship and as we go into this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.